You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. If you want to take a minute and either find it on your phone or there's a pew Bible and um, on the back of the pews, once again, it's 1 Kings verse, chapter 19, verses 9 through 21. And I'll be reading from the ESV. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over uh, Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elijah, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mahoila, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elijah, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh. 
with the, yokes of the, with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Uh, well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're glad you're with us, especially if you're new. Uh, thanks for coming this evening. We're looking at these uh, stories of the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament, and um, one reason for doing that is because in the stories of Elijah and Elisha, who are kind of uh, almost identical figures, um, they're two prophets that sound almost exactly the same, and they have almost exactly the same function. And in these stories of these two prophets, you have the, the greatest concentration of miracles anywhere in the Old Testament other than the Exodus. And then Elijah is the only one other prophet besides Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration uh, with Jesus. So clearly this is a very important prophet, uh, one of the greatest prophets. People thought probably that he was the, the great prophet who was to come after Moses. Um, and Israel has become so pagan, uh, so Canaanized, uh, she has given herself over to the gods of the Canaanites and the uh, people around her, like the god Baal, who's the god that is being worshipped by King Ahab. And uh, she's become so pagan that actually her police are hunting down the great prophet Elijah. That's how far she's fallen from God. Um, and in a moment like that, God's love doesn't diminish for her. It actually strengthens and that's why the miracles occur, is because God is trying to woo her back, trying to bring Israel back to himself. That's why God sends Elijah. And that's why God dries up the whole land and does not allow it to rain for three years, because he's trying to show Israel the state of her soul, because he wants her to come back to him. And, he, and then Yahweh challenges Baal, the god of the, uh, the Canaanites, to a storm contest to prove that he's superior to Baal. And he shows that he is. He brings down the fire that Baal could not bring, and then he brings down the rain, and Israel finally repents for about three days. And then the Queen Jezebel issues a death threat on Elijah, and he's being hunted down again. And so last week we saw that Elijah was running from God, running from the ministry, heading south to Mount Sinai, and we saw that he wanted to take his life. He was, he was that low. Uh, he was that desperate. And in that place, God came and strengthened him. Uh, God gave him food for his journey, even though he was running from God. And it says in verse 8 that Elijah went south for 40 days and 40 nights and arrived at Mount Sinai. And he only could do that because God strengthened him with that food. And at Mount Sinai, uh, we see him complaining to God. As Mary Margaret said, he's extremely disappointed, extremely frustrated. It's not the life he thought he was going to live. And I want to look at how God responds to that complaint that's so instructive for us as Christians in both the way we uh, receive these moments ourselves and the way we talk to other believers about such moments. Um, it's so important to see the way God responds to Elijah's complaint. So first the complaint itself, verse 9 says he crept into a cave, and this is a cave on Mount Sinai, uh, also known as a cleft in the rock, which if you know the story of Moses, he also hid in a cleft in the rock on Mount Sinai. And, you know, I was imagining that the Ten Commandments, like the first draft is etched on the wall of the cave because it's potentially the same exact place that Moses was. I mean, imagine 
uh, Elijah seeing something like that. But he's clearly terrified because he's going into a cave. Even though Jezebel is 300 miles to the north, he's carrying around all this uh, fear in his body. And so he is going into a cave, even though there's no way anyone could actually attack him. He's going the wrong direction. He's running from God. It's like an anti-Exodus where Israel came out of Egypt into the promised land through Mount Sinai. Now he is going out of Israel, out of the promised land to Mount Sinai, possibly going all the way back to Egypt. Who knows what he's doing? But he thinks he's going to leave God, and then God is waiting for him on that mountain that he's running to. And it says that, uh, verse 9, behold, which always means in the Bible, look, or can you believe it? And it says, behold, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. This is like in the beginning was the word. This is the second person of the Trinity, uh, the God who speaks, who comes to our level and speaks. This is the Son of the Father. And you would think that being a word, that he would mostly talk, because words usually do that. But you would think he would say, get back to where you once belonged, you know, get back to Israel, uh, get back to King Ahab. But the word doesn't do that. The word comes, and like a good parent with frightened children, uh, he asks questions. And if you are a parent and you have frightened children, ask questions. Start out with questions. What are you doing here, Elijah? And just try to think about the tone of voice of the word of God speaking that to Elijah in that place and how God loves to hear his children talk. And if you have a child and they're not talking to you, what you really want is you want that child to start talking to you. And that's what God wants. Even though he knows that there's going to be anger coming from the child. You know, when, when Margie asks me, my wife, uh, what's wrong, and she can clearly see that something's wrong, she knows that it's going to be painful, probably, what comes out of me. But she's willing to take that um, because she wants me to talk. And Elijah starts talking. And there's a lot of pain in these words. And there's a lot of resentment and a lot of bitterness, and God can take that. A lot of the Psalms have those things. So when you pray to God, if you're disappointed, if you're angry, just say it. He wants, you to, hear, he wants to hear that from you. He says, I have served the Lord God of hosts with all my heart. He's talking to the Word of God about the Lord. So he's talking to the Son about the Father. I have served your dad with all of my heart all these years, and what do I get for that? He feels betrayed. He felt like there was going to be repentance in Israel. There was repentance. He felt like there was going to be a revival. He thought he was going to be respected. He thought he had a vocation. And then all of a sudden, he's on the run. He's running for his life. And he says in verse 10, they're all criminals up there. They're all compromised. Nobody cares about you anymore. It's just me. They've forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've murdered the prophets. And I, even I, am the only one left. And I think we've all felt that way at times. Like everyone, uh, except for me, has abandoned the Lord. Everybody else is morally compromised. It's this weird combination of self-pity and grandiosity at the same time. You know, all those other pastors have sold out. They've sold their souls. All they want is power and fame. And I, even I, only am left. Think about the way you've said that before. How you've gotten isolated in a cave it's almost always going to be when you're isolated, when you're running from God's people. It kind of go crazy when you're in a cave like that by yourself. You start telling yourself these stories. 
We start telling God what should have happened. And that's when you know you're in a, in a dangerous place, when you start telling God what should have happened. Ahab was supposed to repent. Israel was supposed to have a revival. I was supposed to be a hero. That was the, that was the script that I had written for my life. And it didn't happen. And every time we repeat that script, the resentment just grows in our heart. You know, we were supposed to get married. We were supposed to have a child. The child was supposed to be happy. We were supposed to have this family that was perfect. And when our child, our child, was suffering about as much as you could possibly suffer in high school, completely falling apart uh, in so many different ways, somewhat like Elijah had been, 40 days earlier, I distinctly remember praying, this is not the life I am supposed to be living. And I'm a pastor, and I have served you, and this is what I get. I remember praying that distinctly as I was driving back home from the bagel station past uh, that church in Ardmore, uh, just telling myself over and over, you know, that doesn't help you come to terms with it when you do that. When you keep repeating your story to God about what was supposed to happen, that does not help you come to terms with what happened. The bitterness sometimes is, is holding you back even more than the pain itself. You've got the pain itself of the child suffering so much, but there's also the bitterness that can't even let you get to the pain because you're saying that shouldn't happen. I, my life should not go that way. That's not the way an American person's life should go. Um, just telling ourselves over and over, why are you trying to destroy me, Lord? Verse 10, they seek my life to take it away. And notice that uh, Yahweh does not say, let me explain myself, or here's the rest of the plan, or I'm so sorry, I'm going to make it up to you, or any of those things. He doesn't call him out. He doesn't rebuke him. It's more like what he does with Abraham in Genesis 15:5, when Abraham is really disappointed, because he thought that a son was coming, a son didn't come, and God says, uh, let me take you outside, Abraham, and I want you to look at the stars. And the Lord took Abraham outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars if you can. He just shows him his glory. And when Job is complaining about everything that he had lost to God, in Job 38.1, after all this complaint and bitterness comes out, it says the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And he just gave him a tour of the creation, of all the glory in creation. And when we have this uh, complaint against God, what he does is just reveal himself. He just shows himself to be glorious and majestic and wonderful. In the, uh, the very first book of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, Fellowship of the Ring, very early on, Bilbo Baggins is a hobbit who is believing all these lies about uh, Gandalf, like his best friend, a wizard, this powerful wizard, uh, all these lies about Gandalf. Um, and he's bitterly complaining about all the ways that Gandalf is trying to get the ring of power from him. And Bilbo will not give up the ring of power. And, uh, and Gandalf's trying to get him to freely give it to him. And he's, he's trying to persuade him, and, and it's not working at all. And then all of a sudden, Gandalf, like, he gets really big. He, he rises up to his full stature, and he says, Bilbo Baggins, do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. I am not trying to rob you. And then his voice gets really soft. I'm trying to help you. And Bilbo, like, is shaken by it, and he, he gives him, finally gives him the ring. And that's kind of what God is doing with Elijah. He gets, he just shows Elijah, his majesty, and then, he gives, and then he, he gives him a word with this beautiful voice that we're going to look at next. So that's the, the complaint, and now the theophany, which means, theophany means a revelation of God, like the unveiling 
of the thin membrane between the heavens and the earth and the heavens come pouring in. That's what a theophany is. Pray for a theophany. If you're in a place of enormous disappointment and bitterness and resentment, pray for God to reveal himself. God says, go stand outside, just like he said to Abraham, this is verse 11, and stand on the mountain before the Lord. He actually said the same thing to Moses. I will show, I will let all of my glory pass in front of you. So it's almost the same scene. Go and stand outside the mountain before the Lord. But Elijah won't do it. He doesn't go out until later. At this point, he sits, he sits in the cave because he knows what God is like. He, he's afraid of the fire of Mount Carmel. He knows, what, he knows the story of Moses and how uh, God said, if, I, if you saw my full glory, you would die. And so Elijah stays in the cave. And it says in verse 11, a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces. And after the wind, an earthquake, and after the earthquake, a fire. So it's earth, wind, and fire, these three elements, primal elements. God shows his glory in all these elements, stronger and stronger. But then as the spectacular becomes more spectacular and more spectacular, the, the last thing, it says God was not in the fire, not in the earth, not in the wind. He was in this voice. And this is what distinguishes Baal from Yahweh, is Baal can do all the, the magic tricks, all the, the, the works of power. You know, he's like Thor, the god of thunder, god of the storm. He can bring the storm, but what he doesn't do is he does not speak personally to his people. He is not of a voice. And this really makes uh, Jesus and, and the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the Trinity, this, this distinguishes uh, our God from all the other gods, is the way that he comes and speaks to us. Because that's where you encounter somebody is in a voice. Um, you don't encounter somebody from their majesty or how they look or how big they are, how handsome they are, beautiful they are, how smart they are. You encounter them in the voice. And this is not just any voice. This is a voice unlike any voice. Verse 12 says, the sound of a low whisper. And there are so many ways of translating that. And if you read all the different types of Bibles, the still small voice is the most famous one. But when I was researching this, there's another alternate translation that is just as good in the Hebrew. And it is exactly the opposite of a still small voice. It's a thundering, crushing sound. And so it left me as an interpreter in this, you know, quandary. Like, is it, which one is it? Is it still small or is it thundering, crushing? And I was really wrestling with that because the Hebrew is very tricky. It's like the word cleave. It kind of can be these very different things, you know, cleave or then cleave. And so I was trying to figure out why would God make it so hard? And what I finally thought of is maybe God was doing that intentionally to show that this voice of Yahweh is both. That it is both, it's kind of like that low rumble of thunder in a, with heat lightning when it just goes on and on and on. I remember going to Illinois uh, out in these huge cornfields, and there was a storm way, way out on the horizon. And you didn't really, the lightning was kind of just like heat lightning up in the sky, but um, you heard this continuous low rumbling. And in some ways it was low, and in other ways it was very, very loud. And it reminded me of the voice of Aslan, the lion, the lion, the witch in the wardrobe, when he calls, the, um, he calls Narnia into existence with his voice. He sings a song. And there's one time where somebody asked Aslan, who are you? And he says, myself, with a deep and low voice. And then he says again, myself, loud and clear. 
And then finally he says, myself. He whispers, so soft you could hardly hear. And this is exactly what Elijah needed to hear. This voice that is unlike any other voice. This revelation through these, these words. And it says that he, uh, he wrapped his face in a cloak in verse 13, which just shows that something has happened to him. It's not even clear what happened to him. But that didn't happen the first time. So he's in a different place, and now he's come out of the cave. He's got his face right. He's probably a little bit scared. His eyes are darting back and forth. Um, but he's now outside the cave, finally. <clears throat> so there's some forward momentum. And then Yahweh comes back and probes his heart again. And he says, like I said, what are you doing here? Second time, same exact question, word for word in the Hebrew. And it reminds me of when Margie will see that I'm not in a good place, and she'll say, Ben, what is going on? And again, like I said, she knows I'm going to start ranting and raving uh, about my TV's inability to get access sports, because we lost our cable subscription. And so I bought an antenna, and I didn't know, I didn't read any instructions, um, and I was so angry that it wasn't working, and she just plugged it in, the USB port. I didn't see that you, you're supposed to do that. It was in the instructions, but I was yelling. I was so mad. I was like quivering. I said, I've got to get out of here. And I went and took a bath. And um, <laughs> then she comes back to me later after this rant, and she says, no, no, really, what's wrong? Same question, second time, totally different, totally different response. I, I, the complaint is not gone, but my heart is now softened. And if you've ever had that happen to you, you know what I'm talking about, where that second time, everything changes. Same words, but now it's with that voice. It's that low, rumbling, powerful voice. And notice, and this is discouraging, we talked about this in the, the Bible study on Wednesday, it's the same complaint, word for word. Like, it's, Elijah doesn't seem to learn anything. But, but Yahweh's response is so different now. So, verse 14, basically what Elijah says is I've always served you, I'm all alone, and for my service, I'm about to be killed. That's what he's basically saying. I've always served you, I'm all alone, and I'm about to be killed. I'm completely unsafe. And notice how Yahweh responds and just, he matches every single one of those three complaints. He says, actually, uh, you can rest from your labors now. You know, you're finished now. It's not a punishment. It's like, you can rest. You have always served me, and I'm letting you go. And you're not alone. It's the second thing. There's, there's thousands of other believers. When he says 7,000, that means just like a ton. There's thousands of other believers. And you're not, you're not unsafe. I will keep you safe. I'm right here. And um, I think the question is, like, have you heard the word speak to you that way? And I mean like in the scriptures, where you read something from the scriptures and you just hear that word, the word of the Lord, in the way that only the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can speak, um, where he kind of is saying, I've got you right where I want you, right where you're supposed to be. Your life is not a mistake. It is not an accident. I have not stopped writing your story. So what he's telling Elijah, there's a lot more ahead. So he says, anoint Hazael, verse 15, king of Syria, Jehu over Israel. In other words, I've got your back. I'm going to be protecting you with these kings. Anoint Elisha as your successor. Lay down your weary head, verse 16. 
And then 18, there are 7,000 in Israel that have not bowed the knee to Baal. You've got friends. You're not alone. Point by point, God speaks to him and reassures him. It's like when Paul is terrified in Corinth and he's ready to give up the ministry. Uh, he wants to leave Corinth. And this voice comes to him in the night, Acts 18.9. He says, don't be afraid. I am with you and I have many people in this city. Same idea. Same reassurance. And so again, I ask, have you heard that voice um, of the incarnate word of God? The word of God who became flesh. And in Isaiah 42.3, it says that he never shouted, that he never raised his voice, that he would never crush the weakest reed or extinguish the most flickering candle. And apparently that was a prophecy of Jesus. And so our Lord spoke with that still small voice. No matter how angry we get at him or how much we hate him, um, he still speaks to us in that way. With all the power you know, of a lion, but still he speaks to us in a way that will not extinguish the most flickering candle. And when people spit on Jesus and said, prophesy, who hit you? You know, more than a complaint, but that there's that anger in our hearts towards God. That wasn't just them. That's, that's in everyone. And when, when we spit on him and say, prophesy, who hit you? He blessed us and says they, they don't know what they're doing. And when we mock him and say, hail, king of the Jews, he prays, Father, forgive them. This is the way Yahweh always responds to his complaining children. And when we taunt him, come down from that cross so that we may believe, he cries out for us, it is finished. And so when we betray him, he always stays faithful to us. Though we are faithless, uh, John says, he remains faithful to us. And so on the night he was ultimately betrayed, came out, you know, on the, on the, when he came to us, if he had come to any society, any civilization, any culture, uh, any island in the world, uh, any, anywhere at all, that group of people would have done the same thing. Any human being, if, if you think you wouldn't have been there shouting crucify, crucify, you need to just check yourself. Because uh, that's what the story says, is that when those things are being screamed at him, that's the human heart. That's not like those people were terrible, like those First century Jewish people were horrible or the Romans were horrible. No, that's all of us. That's what the point of that story is, is that we were all saying, crucify him, crucify Like, I don't want anything to do with him. And on that night that we did that, when we betrayed him and complained at the top of our lungs, he gently and quietly said, this is my body, broken for you. He didn't have to shout or scream. And blood shed for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. So whenever we eat this bread, whenever we drink from this cup, we are proclaiming this mystery of mysteries that uh, Jesus loves us at our lowest place, at our worst place, and that nothing we ever do can separate us from his love. Um, because if we're loved while we're still sinners, 
How much more now that we've been reconciled to him will be loved forever? You know, when Paul was uh, heading to Damascus to kill all these Christians, uh, there was no love in his heart at all for God. And on, at that very moment was when the love of God hit him the strongest. And that's what this should do to us tonight. It should hit you how much he loves you and your complaint and your disappointment and your anger towards him. So I'm going to pray that, uh, that God does this as we take this meal. And I also want to say that um, if you don't have to be uh, a member of this church, you don't have to be a Presbyterian, you don't have to be Protestant, uh, you might not know what you are, you might still be searching, but if you want uh, what I've been talking about, this Son of God, the Word of God coming to save you and rescue if you want that, um, come and receive. He wants you to come and partake. And if you're not ready to do that, we're glad you're here and feel no pressure to partake. So Father, we pray that you would soften our hearts through your voice, speak our name, Lord, only your voice. Uh, no pyrotechnics, no fireworks, no skywriting, nothing, no miracle could ever reach us like your voice. And if anyone has not heard your voice, I pray they would hear their name spoken by you, their full name spoken by you, the lover of their souls, their, their maker, um, knit together in our mother's wombs, known before we were born. Uh, I pray that your voice, that quality it has, I've heard it before, um, that we would hear that tonight, and that you would take away a lot of our, our hurt and our disappointment, our anger, our bitterness and resentment, and we pray that you would do this for Jesus' sake. We pray in his name. Amen. Remember, we love these rascals.